Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Three guests in two segments today. First, Maxine Dugan and Tara Burns will talk to us about how the surveillance state is oppressing sex workers and, and using them for practice and how to oppress the rest of us. And then David Broder will talk about fascism, neo-fascism, and post-fascism in Italy. First, surveillance. A couple of weeks ago, the Erotic Service Provider Legal Education and Research Project, the ESPLER Project, published a report how the war on sex work is stripping your privacy rights. It's an examination, based largely on public records requests from California law enforcement agencies, of how extensive snooping on sex workers is not only oppressing them, but offering cops practice on how to spy on the rest of us. We're joined by two of the authors of the report, Tara Burns and Maxine Dugan. Tara Burns is research director for Coyote, Rhode Island, and a sex worker for almost three decades. Maxine Dugan is president of the Espler Project and a sex worker of 30-plus years. She says she plans to continue to work for another 30-plus more. The first voice you'll hear other than mine is Maxine Dugan's. Maxine, you've been doing this sort of work since uh, 2005, right? Could you describe some of the techniques that you uh, use to do this research? Um, yeah, I've been doing um, public records uh, research on what public agencies are doing around prostitution. So in 2005, I started asking San Francisco district attorneys, San Francisco police departments for copies of all their MOUs, you know, um, memorandums of understandings that they had with nonprofits, because we knew they had a, a nonprofit that was doing the shame-based sex-negative diversion program uh, for people arrested for prostitution. And we wanted to see, because it was a nonprofit providing those services through the district attorney's office, we wanted to see what that contract looked like. And then we started asking further questions about, you know, well, how many people are arrested? Well, how many condoms are being confiscated in these prostitution arrests? Because, you know, condoms are a safety device on our job. And we wanted to know how many of our condoms were being confiscated and used as evidence in prostitution cases, because we have one part of the public health department handing out condoms for free. And then we have the other part of the, the the public monies going towards using those condoms and logging those condoms as evidence. So then we went on and formed um, the nonprofit, the Erotic Service Providers Legal Education Research Project. So we're an actual 501c3. And we were just looking for some monies to try to get at always to help expose what these public agencies are doing around prostitution. And we were able to get a grant from the Rose Foundation around the technology that the police are now using to make these prostitution arrests in California. So um, that's how our project started this time. You made a lot of requests. They, the authorities didn't make it easy, right? Forthcoming isn't the first word that comes to mind. Right. So in our um, report called How the War on Sex Work is Stripping Your Privacy Rights, we did hundreds of requests of Public agencies in California, you know, all the sheriff departments, we have 58 counties. So the 58 sheriff departments, the district attorney's offices, the smaller police agencies, in some cases not so small, like the Los Angeles Police Department, um, are doing prostitution arrests. And then, of course, the probation departments. Um, to ask them what technology they were using to make these uh, prostitution arrests. And so what we found out was that there's a lot of technology that's uh, being used now in these prostitution arrests. Yeah, now there are um, a whole lot of scrutiny techniques, surveillance techniques, and also a lot of databases. So let's talk about these things. Um, what kind of databases they, do they have? And where does the information come from? So there's a lot of these different databases. Um, and basically, companies, and oftentimes they're companies that do other things too, like car insurance companies or cell phone companies have these databases and they maintain these databases with information about people in the United States. And then police can just subscribe to these databases and look up the information. 
And these databases are archiving information from social media posts. They're using facial recognition technologies to find all of your social media profiles. Some of them include credit report information and that kind of thing. Also, you know, tax information, you know, like what kind of house and cars you own, phone numbers, all of that kind of stuff. So a lot of those are things that police would not be able to get a warrant. They would have to get a warrant in order to go and get that kind of information about you from a cell phone company or something like that, right? But if they're subscribed to one of these databases, they can just look it up. They just look up your name and they can pull all that information. And there's archived information. Maybe you deleted your old MySpace account from back in the day, but it's still your old MySpace posts and information are still in these databases and police can still find them today. They can see archived, in some cases, location information and reviews of different businesses that you've posted ever, even if you've deleted it, right? It's all archived by these databases. And those are for everyone. That's happening for everyone, not just people that are suspected of committing a crime or anything like that. These are web bots that crawl the web and maintain these databases. And there are some of these databases that are specific to sex work. Traffic Jam is the most concerning one. Traffic Jam crawls prostitution advertising websites, and it uses facial recognition technologies to then cross-reference with our social media, our legal identity, phone numbers, email addresses, everything we've ever done online, basically. In recent years, sex workers have been stopped crossing borders quite frequently and told, oh, you're a prostitute. You can't come to the United States. You can't go to England. You can't, can't be in this country because you're a prostitute. The Border Patrol agents will have printouts of their prostitution ads. And I remember in one case, somebody said, well, this was a prostitution ad that I posted five years ago. And people are wiping their phones and doing all kinds of things before going through the border and still being stopped. And a lot of people in our community think that these advertising websites are selling our information to the police because they check our IDs to make sure that we're of age when we post. So people think, well, they have our IDs, they're sending our IDs to the FBI or something, right? But it turns out it's actually probably these, these databases that are identifying us based on facial recognition technologies from our advertisements. They can also track your uh, comings and goings through like speed cameras and toll booth cameras and things too, right? These are also incorporated into those databases? Right. So this is a different kind of database. There's a lot of databases. So yeah, there's license plate recognition, LPR cameras, and they're not just stationary. They're not just on the pole cameras. They're also on most police cars that are driving around and a lot of mall cop cars, that kind of thing. And what they do is when they drive past, a, uh, when they recognize a license plate, they take a picture and they archive that picture with the GPS location of the car, the time and date and the picture, which can show, you know, who was, who was riding in your car. I think there's a lawsuit in California right now about showing children. So that's another kind of database. And then a third kind of, I don't know, I think of it as a database, but it's, it's a database. Um, it's something, you know, like Cellhawk, which allows police to access these big data dumps from cell towers. If you understand like our expectation of privacy under the constitution, apparently the courts have ruled that when we're connected to a public cell phone tower, the information that we send through a public cell phone tower, we don't have an expectation of privacy, but we do have a, an expectation of privacy for real-time data. But companies like Cellhawk, they get these major data dumps from cell towers, and then that allows police to see text messages, playback phone calls, visualize up to 20 vehicle or 20 phones and how they move in relation to each other over time, and basically see everything you do on your phone, because everything you do on your phone is sent through a cell phone tower. Back in 1999 or so, Scott McNeely, who was then chair of Sun Microsystems, said, you have no privacy, get over it. Here we are 24 years later, and uh, that's that's truer than ever. It's just there is no 
privacy, essentially, if if they can just track every uh, bit of electronic uh, manifestation or even your face as you walk about. Yeah. And people have said to me, you know, well, why do you care if you're not doing anything wrong? And, you know, obviously they're the reason is because we're scared of our government. And, you know, these are things that the founding fathers foresaw and tried to put in the Constitution to protect us from. If they get a hold of your phone, they can uh, read its contents, right? Yeah. So, you know, they can look through your phone, but they also have these programs and devices that allow them to just copy your whole phone. People are talked into doing that even when they don't technically have to a lot of times because the police will be like, well, just let me do a quick search of your phone with this device here. They call it a search, even though it's a copy. They call it phone ripping, actually, in their training documents. And then you can take your phone home with you. Otherwise, I'm going to take your phone and keep your phone while I try to get a warrant to get into your phone and blah, blah, blah. But just let me do a quick search of your phone and I'll give it back to you. And then these programs let them basically organize the content of your phone for them and let them look through it in a really user-friendly, easy way and search for things. That's the voice of Tara Burns. I'm speaking with her and Maxine Dugan about a report they helped write on how snooping on sex workers, bad enough in itself, is practice run for more extensive invasions of privacy. Well, since most of us have most of our lives on our phones now, I mean, they can find out an awful lot by doing this. Yeah. Somebody said, and it was a police officer that was quoted somewhere saying, a phone is really like a fingerprint of the soul, something like that. I don't want cops looking into my soul. That sounds very scary. Mm-hmm. There's a bit in uh, your report about how they send out creepy letters to people. I, like, I know where you've been. Like, what, what's that about? So part of what happens is that all of these police departments, um, they have task force about human trafficking and sex trafficking. They get a bunch of money from the federal government, and they often come up with a bunch of cookie-cutter legislation that they try to pass at the state level trying to say things like, oh, our customers are the cause of forced labor in the sex industry. The customers are the cause of the whole industry. But of course, you know, that's such a flawed theory because actually it's it's us, you know, that often solicits people for sex. We want to be paid for sex. We want to be able to negotiate for our own labor and our own safe work conditions on our own terms. So the government does the sort of end run around with these license plate readers. If you drive through certain neighborhoods, they'll read your license plate and then they'll send you a letter saying, hey, you know, we, we know that you were in this neighborhood and, you know, you shouldn't really be in this neighborhood if, if you're trying to pick up people who are prostitutes and they go off into these shaming, fear mongering sex trafficking type uh, language in, and they just target certain neighborhoods. And often those neighborhoods that they target are people of color. They're predominantly people of color neighborhoods. So that's some of the other information that came up in our review of these public documents is that the majority of these citations where we were able to get the names of the people arrested are all Spanish surnames. Now they're being profiled and racially profiled. And we know that our facial recognition has a, an abominable record on, you know, being able to identify people of color because they're so, they were made by racist people, apparently. You know, that's some of the other stuff that we saw in these public records requests is that we have the, um, the Racial Justice Act in California. So they're not supposed to be charging people when predominantly the people that are being arrested for something are people of color. But Obviously, they are arresting people of color in these prostitution sting operations because the anti-prostitution laws have a racist-based history. They should be repealed and they should be removed off the books. Now, a lot of people will say, well, I'm not a sex worker, so I don't really have to worry about this. Besides, they're criminals anyway, so why should I care? What do you say to that? The problem with widespread use of all of this uh, privacy invasion technology that they're using on the prostitute nation, oftentimes these tech companies and certainly the police departments, law enforcement, including district attorney's offices, and you know, we've got Homeland Security, these federal agencies involved in these prostitution sting operations, you know, where prostitution is criminalized at the state level. It's not criminalized at the federal level, but there's all this money going into focusing on these prostitution arrests 
and we ask ourselves why you know why is the federal government involved in these prostitution arrests and they're bringing all this technology to to do so and so the only correct answer here is that they are doing it because they're running um, the test sample on our population because they're they're using it and they're getting ready to use it on a much larger scale on the general public without the general public's knowledge without the general public's permission the general public should be very concerned about these privacy violations privacy is a right and it should be treated with respect and it's something that um, every individual person on the planet covets you know europe has passed a lot of stringent privacy laws around technology, and the United States has done hardly anything around protecting the citizens' privacy, and they need to be protecting citizens and non-citizens' privacy alike. Because what was really scary to me is how these prostitution arrests are being used to deport people from the United States. Prostitution is a misdemeanor. It, it shouldn't be used as the tool to be able to have the excuse to deport people out of California. They're literally booting people out who are the backbone of the economy in California. So it's really counterproductive uh, using this technology in this way. There should be laws against it and prostitution should not be criminalized. Okay, so we need to bring this to a close here, but uh, just two questions uh, about the what is to be done kind of question. Is there anything individuals can do to protect themselves against this sort of thing? There are small things we can do, but if you have a phone, there's really not much you can do. People just becoming aware of what is going on and working for change is the best way to protect ourselves. Okay, then what kind of policy changes could we see that would actually do something about this? So many policy changes. <laughs> I mean, at the federal level, they've got to pass some laws laying out privacy and protecting privacy. And it's a very um, important issue right now, especially when the federal highest court has overturned uh, the protection for abortions. The abortion protection in the United States of America was based on privacy. It was based on your privacy conversations between you and your doctor. And so we need to see some individual privacies be recognized, that they not be attached to some third party like your doctor or your phone or that type of thing, that we need to have some basic privacies ensconced in our federal laws. And I think at the local level, you know, the states need to decriminalize prostitution. They need to start decriminalizing these small misdemeanors and start taking away uh, technologies and the government's right to do all these intrusions under the guise of, of being uh, criminalized. You know, there has to be some consequences for law enforcement agencies who violate the California public records request. You know, we have uh, only half of the people that we sent public records requests to responded. So that means all these agencies are in violation and there has to be some consequences for that. They're in violation of the Racial Justice Act. There has to be some immediate, substantial, meaningful consequences for those violations. And Tara, do you want to put a last word in? Yeah, so basically we have this whole industry, it's the commercial surveillance industry, of big companies that earn their money, and, and some of them are very profitable, publicly traded companies, Palantir for one, who make all of this money by collecting, analyzing, and, and profiting from the information about people, our private information. And that whole industry should be illegal. And then we have also a lot of information, a lot going on at the federal level right now that we're still investigating what's going on with fusion centers and sex workers. But we know that there are huge violations of our rights happening with fusion centers that are acknowledged by police. There's a lawsuit right now in going on in Maine over the fusion center privacy violations. So we need some oversight over the federal law enforcement community to 
Those are Maxine Dugan and Tara Burns, two of the eight listed contributors to a report by the Espler Project and how surveillance of sex workers is messing with their lives and laying the groundwork for messing with everyone else's as well. You can find it on the web at esplerp.org. That's E-S-P-L-E-R-P.org. Tara Burns mentioned fusion centers. These are organizations scattered across the country in 46 states, D.C., Puerto Rico, and two territories that bring together federal, state, and local authorities to share intelligence in order to spy on Americans in virtually complete secrecy, as the ACLU puts it. Also, The Intercept reported the other day that 200 homeowners associations around the country are using license plate readers, which are hooked up to COP databases, to survey their precious territory. Flock, the company who runs the network, works closely with local police departments to get the things installed, and then the cops take advantage of them. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of Alfred Schnitke's Quintet for Piano and Strings, fifth movement performed by Yuri Smirnov et al. Italy's new, well, as of October, Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney is head of a party called Fratelli d'Italia, Brothers of Italy. It emerged from a party known by its Italian initials, MSI, which itself emerged quite directly from Mussolini's fascist party. So Italy today is led by the organizational and ideological descendants of actual fascists. Who are they and what do they stand for? My next guest, David Broder, the Europe editor of Jacobin, is just out with a book called Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy, published by Pluto Press. The grandchildren of the title is figurative, but it's also literally true. His granddaughter, Alessandra Mussolini, is a prominent politician and a member of the European Parliament. Her sister is a member of the Rome City Council. A second cousin, whose middle names are Italian for Julius Caesar, ran for the European Parliament in 2019. There are no Hitlers in German politics today. So who are these modern fascists? Here's David Broder to explain. I didn't realize that uh, Mussolini got deposed in 43 and then was restored and reduced to this uh, smaller region. So talk first about what happened to uh, the fascist movement, the fascist party, um, as World War II is winding down and then finally ended. Even before the final downfall of Benito Mussolini, as the Allied troops were advancing through northern Italy, parts of the fascist party thought about what they'd do after the war, how they would keep the fascist movement going. From 1919, with the creation of the original fascist project, and throughout the seizure of power, the whole regime period, and the Salah Republic in the final two years, fascism had always basically been identified with Mussolini. It had many different strands and factions and so on, but they were united in a single leader. And after Mussolini's death, killed by partisans, of course. Some of his former lieutenants tried to reorganize a fascist movement, either that would be a clandestine movement that would carry out armed attacks on allied troops, or those who had the idea that they could somehow create a fascist party within a democracy. Two of the key figures here are Pino Romualdi. Romualdi was the uh, deputy leader of the fascist Republican Party, in the Nazi collaborationist Salo regime. And he was involved in a group called the Revolutionary Fasci of Action, who carried out some small-scale terrorist attacks in 1945 to 6. They burst into a radio station and played the fascist anthem, this kind of thing, just to show that they were still alive, attacked uh, the Communist Party offices, attacked the US embassy. Romualdi often claimed that he was actually Mussolini's biological son, and another key leader from this period, you know, the immediate sort of after after the downfall of fascism, was uh, Giorgio Almirante. 
Almirante had been a chief of staff at the Ministry of Popular Culture during the Solor Republic, but he'd earlier made his name as editor of La Difesa della Razza, Defense of the Race, uh, which was the most important uh, biological racist journal of the fascist regime period from 1938. It was the journal in which you'd find the kind of theorization of uh, biological anti-Semitism, of the separation of whites from so-called half-castes. Racism had been part of fascism from the origin, but this is really the, the, the moment of the specifically anti-Semitic racial laws. So Almirante was a leader of that publication. And in 1945, after hiding for, away for a few months, he began to link up with these other so-called neo-fascists, who were planning to get back together again. So Romualdi and Almirante are among the, the main founders of the so-called MSI, Italian Social Movement, which is the new fascist party created at the end of 1946. And this party is really the origin of Fratelli d'Italia, Giorgio Meloni's party. Meloni herself often praises the tradition of Giorgio Almirante, as I said, the editor of this uh, racist uh, publication, and he's the kind of main post-war leader of the MSI. So if we talk about the history of Fratelli d'Italia, and as I do in the book, that's the kind of starting point. These people who had been veterans of the fascist regime, indeed had fought alongside Nazi Germany right to the end in the Solo Republic. Uh, at first, the MSI actually didn't allow uh, anyone to join who had, as they saw it, uh, betrayed Mussolini by abandoning ship in 1943. It was a party of uh, militants who'd fought right to the end alongside Nazi Germany uh, until the uh, moment of total defeat. Did Italy not undergo something comparable to German denazification, which I know is a very incomplete process, but uh, they did make formal attempts to remove Nazis from positions of power and ban any use of Nazi symbolism or Nazi politics. Uh, did nothing comparable happen in Italy? There were some attempts at removal of fascists from the public administration, but they were stopped very early. One reason, of course, is that uh, even if we think of the West German denazification, which is really what we're talking about, I guess not, the, not so much the Eastern case, a lot of the most important trials, uh, like when we think of the Nuremberg trials, were, of course, carried out by the Allied occupation authorities in Germany, not by German authorities. It was by the you know the British and Americans and Soviets who carried out the most important removals. I don't know the exact numbers, but around twenty thousand court cases were held in post-war Germany before the West German state was actually created in nineteen forty-nine. In the Italian case, there were some attempts to hold war crimes trials even before the complete liberation of Italian territory at the end of nineteen forty-five. Some of those cases are interesting because, for example, uh, to take uh, one, uh, Mario Roatta who said was one of the, the leading generals in the Italian campaign in Yugoslavia, was wanted by Tito's Yugoslavia for a war crimes uh, trial. He was tried in Italy instead, but then he was allowed to escape before the judgment was delivered. With the help of the Vatican, he was escaped away to Spain. So even some quite top war criminals uh, were able to get away in this manner. But the most important thing is that there was very early on a decision to carry out an only very limited purge of the uh, Italian state administration. So only around a thousand fascist officials uh, actually lost their jobs because of these purges. During the uh, immediate post-war period, there was a coalition government of anti-fascist parties in which the communist leader Palmiro Togliatti was the justice minister. And Togliatti actually issued an amnesty for wartime crimes, uh, including those by fascist officials, in the name of restoring social peace. There's an interesting recent book by Mimmo Francinelli, which is about some of the court cases which tested the limits of this amnesty. So we get a lot of these judgments. Well, such and such wasn't a... They may have committed torture, but they did so in a not particularly cruel way. So judges many of whom who uh, remained in, in post who'd been appointed under the regime uh, often chose to uh, use the amnesty uh, very liberally. So even such figures as, for example, Rodolfo Graziani, a uh, war criminal and defense minister of the Solo Republic, the Nazi collaborationist Solo Republic, only spent a couple of years in jail after the war. 
Uh, and if we look at things like, for example, the provincial police commissioners of Italy uh, after World War II, let's say uh, in 1960, 108 out of 120 of those police commissioners were fascist era appointees. So the machine really remained very much uh, in, uh, untouched. Of course, the, the political party system certainly had been overhauled after 1946. The MSI was a party of two, three, four percent of the vote, wasn't uh, popular. The new constitution created by the anti-fascist parties banned the reconstitution of the fascist party in 1952. But even then, that's always been uh, interpreted really to mean um, a ban on a party that uh, mobilizes to seize power by force. So the mere existence of fascist ideas or of the so-called political culture of fascism uh, was never itself uh, suppressed. So, of course, some fascist uh, armed groups were crushed under this law in post-war decades, uh, but the MSI itself maintained a continued existence as a, a self-described uh, fascist party. Now, a lot of the struggle around fascist politics in Italy is a battle over history. Uh, for example, was it really fascism? Is it fair to lump it with Nazism? How do those competing interpretations play out? One thing that's um, a little ironic, and which I try to bring out in the book, is that the post-war MSI denied the idea that fascism was just reducible to a a prop of Nazism or an Italian version of it. Uh, indeed, a lot of the polemical effort in its memory culture, its way of talking about the past, is precisely to try and salvage the fascist experience from its association with Nazism. So, of course, these ideas, for instance, that, well, it was a mistake to get involved in World War II, that Mussolini was somehow sort of tricked and betrayed by Hitler, who didn't tell him that World War II was going to break out when it did. Even in, say, the 70s, admitting that the anti-Semitic racial laws had been wrong. But also, it was emphasized by the party that these things weren't fundamental to what fascism was. So we have this idea that, that fascism is not just violence and oppression or racism, but is a, a social tradition is a ideology of national renewal, and that it had many beautiful and heroic elements, as well as darker episodes. What this is really saying, and particularly in the mouth of Giorgio Almirante, so a historic MSI leader and someone who Meloni uh, often says she admires, uh, even in the 80s, he insisted that fascism was a political culture. So it's not just a form of organisation or violence or whatever, it's a tradition of ideas. In the 1990s, after Almirante had died and indeed Romualdi had died, Gianfranco Fini tried to take the party into a so-called post-fascist tradition that would sort of somehow relegate fascism to being a matter of the past, not a living political culture, but rather something that's more strictly limited to the regime period. Certainly, if we look at now the way that Milani talks about fascism when she denies that her party is fascist and says that even bringing the issue up is an attempt to demonize her and her party. She always limits fascism to a phenomenon between 1922 and 1945. This is a very reductive and contradictory understanding of fascism because, of course, Milani praises the post-war MSI, which called itself fascist. But at the same time, she denies that fascism lasted after 1945. But I think that also points to something I bring out in the book, which is that there really is a generational change. It really matters that Milani is someone who politically grew up in the 1990s and not in the post-war period or even in the violence of the 1970s. She's not really trying to celebrate the heroism of, of historical fascism, but rather to turn the tables on that and criticize anti-fascism to say that in post-war decades, anti-fascism and indeed the specter of fascism as a real threat was just a tool of the left in order to demonize and uh, criminalize and crush critics of the left. Uh, so in the way Milani talks about party history, there's this very strong victim narrative, this idea of this violent anti-fascist hegemony. I'm speaking with David Broder, author of Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy, just out from Pluto. The alleged persecution of Italians by the Yugoslavian communists at the end of World War II 
plays an important role in the fascist tradition there. Could you talk about that? After the armistice in 1943, the first collapse of the fascist uh, forces, and then again at the very end of the war in April 1945, the Yugoslav communists murdered their Italian opponents uh, and carried out what far-right uh, sources, but no professional historians, call ethnic cleansing. It's certainly true that many hundreds and probably somewhere in the low thousands of Italians uh, were killed after the uh, end of World War II as part of a much wider group of victims, also including Croat and uh, Slovene fascists and other opponents of Tito's uh, rule. Basically, the story as told by the far right, but which has become uh, very normalized in Italian public life, is kind of this idea that Italians were the victims of twin totalitarianisms, both the Nazis and then the Yugoslav communists. So what this story, of course, does is radically reduce the responsibilities of Italian fascism in actually causing World War II and invading Yugoslavia and killing a vastly larger number of people. So instead, we get this story where uh, Italians are the victims of ethnic cleansing. Sometimes this is even connected to the idea that Italians are victims of ethnic cleansing today uh, due to the Great Replacement and the Marxists and financiers who are organizing the extinction of the Italian people. This retelling of World War II is interesting in the sense that it could be a bit easy to imagine that, well, you know, opponents of Fratelli d'Italia want to go on talking about fascism, whereas they're just trying to be normal conservatives. I think that's not the case in the sense that they really are fighting a battle over World War II in order to kind of redeem the history of Italian nationalism, redeem large parts of the fascist regime and those who fought for it by portraying it as somehow a victim of World War II. A good example of this, of course, is that each February the 10th, so two weeks after Holocaust Memorial Day, there is a, a state occasion, uh, a Memorial Day for the Italian victims of Yugoslav partisans who were thrown into the holes, sinkholes, natural holes in the ground known as the Foibet. Many uh, local councils will actually celebrate Holocaust Memorial Day and this Foibe Memorial Day as one joint event. Both Jews in the Holocaust and Italians at the hands of Yugoslav communists were victims of ethnic cleansing. So I think what we see with this is a kind of Italian version of the rewriting of history, which we see also in countries like Poland and Hungary, where 1945 is presented not as a, a liberation from fascism, but rather a kind of moment where ordinary patriots are besieged by twin totalitarianisms with the uh, emphasis, emphasis very much on the uh, communist uh, criminality. You, I really bring forward the fact that the early decades of Italian neo-fascism were shaped by the presence of communists. They were a very large presence in Italian politics for decades. With the collapse of communism uh, and uh, the entry into the post-ideological era of the 1990s, that's when Giorgio Maloney entered the youth wing of the MSI. How did that end of ideology period shape the kind of party she entered and the kind of thinking and organization uh, they were developing? I think there's two contradictory processes going on at the same time. So one is that the end of the Cold War and its effect in destroying the previous Italian political system based on mainly on the counterposition between communists and Christian Democrats. It introduces this idea of the end of ideologies, but also in its wider role of breaking up the party system, it allows something of a opportunity for the old MSI to have a prospect of entering government. Uh, particularly because, of course, the, the real thing that destroys the Christian Democrat and Socialist parties is a vast corruption scandal. So the MSI, uh, under Gianfranco Fini's leadership, tries to recast itself as a post-fascist party. The phrase post-fascist was actually uh, first used and promoted by Fini's Alianza Nazionale, National Alliance, to describe itself to say that, yeah, we were fascists in the past, in a time when communism was strong and a threat, we stuck to that tradition. But now we just want a kind of broad right-wing politics, which draws from many different sources. So they have this uh, Congress in 1995. Uh, it's kind of the Italian rights equivalent of uh, the bad Gudersberg Congress 
of the German Social Democrats in 1959 when they abandon Marxism in the sense that it kind of moves beyond its original ideology and identity. Uh, it signs up to liberal democracy and it proclaims that it's kind of pluralist. They have this phrase, which is they represent the continuity of the Italian right, both before, during and after the 1920s. So this is kind of the start of this project of casting the MSI tradition as generically right-wing and conservative uh, tradition, uh, what Meloni today calls the tradition of the post-war democratic right. But in all that, there's this kind of post-ideological element of this, right? Saying like, well, you know, the big divides are over. The violence of the 1970s, terrorism has also declined significantly. Uh, Italy's entering the Euro. So they too speak a lot of this language of embracing the free market, uh, having a certain vision of globalization, maybe with some emphasis on defending national sovereignty, but still basically accepting this kind of neoliberal triumphalist idea. At the same time, the anti-communism doesn't go away and remains an important identitarian glue. In fact, of course, when Berlusconi uh, first announced that he was entering electoral politics, at the beginning of 1994, he does so in the name of preventing communists coming to power. So the Communist Party is dissolved, but he says, well, these are just old communists in new clothes. So he calls on all moderates to join him. And some of the moderates who he includes in his, uh, or those he calls moderates, he includes in his coalition, are precisely the MSI. So Berlusconi plays a very important role in bringing them into the mainstream, in bringing them into the uh, space of possible parties of government. There's even an amusing kind of 2019 speech by Berlusconi where he says, well, it was me who constitutionalized these fascists. Something to be proud of. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and of course, even though they're his allies and even, even now are his allies, he just openly calls them fascists. When Berlusconi made that intervention in 94, he kind of explicitly says, well, these old communists who say they've become liberal Europeanists are just lying, whereas he sees no reason to believe that the MSI are somehow extremist. Really what he was signaling was unlike the previous Christian democratic uh, or the right wing of the previous Christian democracy, Berlusconi was basically saying he had no enemies to his right. Uh, in fact, some of Berlusconi's electoral coalitions included uh, much more extremist uh, forces uh, in the early 2000s, kind of openly fascist uh, groups. I'm speaking with David Broder, author of Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy, just out from Pluto. A lot of uh, Maloney's politics, the politics of modern Italian post-fascism, whatever we call it, it's hard to come up with an accurate label. But a lot of that is a response to globalization, deindustrialization, the perpetual Italian economic crisis. But the, the responses seem to be very culturally oriented, what we call U.S. culture war stuff. They don't seem to be big on a material program. Is that correct? The MSI tradition, because it really reflects the diversity of historical fascism, includes a certain kind of anti-bourgeois emphasis, almost something like a kind of dirigist state that will sort of protect labor, but like not in a socialist way. But I think really the post-1990s tradition of post-fascism there's very little that would uh, justify you in thinking it's a kind of welfare chauvinist or that it has a sort of specifically like social policy agenda to defend the poorest. In fact, mainly that's kind of rhetoric based around the idea that, well, you know, wealthy liberals obsessed with progressive causes no longer represent the concerns of ordinary working class folk. But there's very little like a specific material offer. Fratelli d'Italia has less even than the other right-wing parties uh, proposed things like deficit spending uh, to help Italy recover from its long-term stagnation. Fratelli d'Italia, basically their sort of economic recipes are heavily focused on tax cuts for small business. Its current economic agenda firstly accepts the main precepts of Mario Draghi's previous government, but also probably the most important thing the government has done thus far in legislative terms is to uh, abolish the unemployment benefits that had been brought in by the five-star government in uh, 2019. Part of the culture war uh, waged by Fratelli d'Italia is in fact precisely built on blaming poor people 
and unemployed people for being lazy, claiming that unemployment benefits are just encouraging young people to lie on the sofa. In education policy as well, there's this very strong emphasis on the idea that children need to be brought up in a kind of culture of hard work, that there needs to be more exemplary discipline and humiliation uh, in order to prepare people for the tough competitive life. Fratelli d'Italia is basically a party of heavy tax cuts. It's proposed this so-called fiscal revolution. It speaks of introducing a flat tax as opposed to a a progressive tax. Its jobs creation plan, moreover, is not based on investment, but rather on tax cuts uh, for uh, employers who hire more staff. Milani often cites uh, Reagan as a political uh, hero of hers. Fratelli d'Italia's economic agenda is is not ever so uh, ambitious, uh, but secondly, is based on bootstraps ideology uh, and in a way quite conventionally uh, right-wing ideas uh, rather than a specifically kind of social or welfareist uh, tradition. It's a party whose economic vision assumes low investment, assumes that Italy is forever to be a country of small businesses with low productivity uh, that compete with other European ones on on the grounds of lower labor costs. The fascist content of this is hard to um, grasp. There's certainly the um, the stuff around sexuality. One of their driving passions is uh, their fear that they're being overwhelmed by um, immigrants. Uh, they subscribe to that sort of great replacement theory that uh, the American right does. But I don't know. What are we to make of that? Are There's a hipster fascist angle. Uh, Maloney herself participates in the conservativist rebel discourse. But is there something underlying all that? Like Once they get to a certain point, they're going to reveal themselves as full-blown fascists. What precisely is the um, the core content of this politics, if there's any? They've successfully integrated the neo-fascist tradition, the history of the MSI. It's integrated that into a broader right-wing politics. As you say, that also has significant overlaps In Italy, it's often said like, well, how can you say that Meloni is an extremist when she's invited to speak at CPAC? I say, well, yeah, but CPAC also has Marjorie Taylor Greene. The parties of a more specifically fascist tradition, not only in Italy, are finding that they can converge uh, with um, sort of radical right-wing parts of other conservative parties with this uh, language of civilizational decline, this obsession with the idea of sort of national extinction, uh, the ethnic substitution, and the financiers and Marxists who are planning the destruction of Western European societies. And of course, Fratelli d'Italia has a basically ethnic conception of Italian nationhood. It opposes citizenship for the children of migrants. Uh, It's obsessed with boosting birth rates and so on because it claims that Italians are becoming extinct because Italianness is defined not by culture or republicanism or citizenship, but rather ethnically. I'm not saying that there's like an analogy between what the Milani government is going to do and historical fascism. I'm not saying that, oh, they're populist and anti-democratic, so therefore that's the comparison. Rather, what the Italian case shows is a party which actually does have organizational continuity with fascism, indeed in the country of fascism's birth, but which has changed its uh, horizons over time. Although Fratelli d'Italia integrates militants from more extremist groups, it has allies who are involved in in social centers and people who go around beating up immigrants, all that is true. But the main thrust of its politics is actually contained within institutions and within a framework which severely limit the scope of its action. So therefore, what it does is it combines its basic loyalty to NATO, the Western alliance, a certain vision of the European Union, none of which I think it will break uh, with, um, it combines that with a intense uh, identity politics within the national level uh, against cultural Marxists and immigrants and those who are supposedly trying to destroy Western civilization. Yes, it does draw on a specifically fascist tradition. It is informed by fascist heroes and thinkers. But I don't think we're going to see a return to the world of the 1930s. Clearly, that's not happening. Fascism arose in the context of mass mobilization 
high levels of social violence, whereas what we instead now see is Fratelli d'Italia is the latest of a series of Italian parties to take over a kind of withered uh, democracy with a low level of real social mobilization and very narrow horizons of social change. How scared should we be of Milani and her government? It's not just rhetoric and, oh, is it is there... I was interviewed the other day for a piece for The Telegraph, which kind of said, well, you know, there's all this alarmism, but ultimately they're not so bad. So I'm very reluctant to accept that conclusion because, of course, you know, if we take, for example, the things around migrant policy, then that actually results in, you know, thousands of deaths per year. Uh, so it's not just, you know, a silly culture war rhetoric and so on. There's no chance that the Meloni government will introduce a fascist-style regime, but I think we could see a slide towards something more like Viktor Orban's Hungary, and there are specific kinds of anti-democratic legislation which have at least been proposed as bills by Milani's party. Uh, a good example would be that the party proposes to ban apologia for Islamist and communist totalitarianism. So I think like it's more likely that we'll see that kind of limiting of democratic space through also, of course, starting a, a sort of a war which the centre-left doesn't really want to fight. You know, they don't want to stand up for Tito and Stalin and so on. But I think it's much more likely that we'll see those kind of limits than formal replacement of the of the democratic system. Uh, of course, that's not going to happen. Also, it's not that Meloni has suddenly swept in and pulled Italian politics radically to the right. You know, it's been 30 years that the Italian uh, right has been radicalized, has been obsessed with these identity politics, has been maintaining Italy as a country where the right is more or less openly racist. So, of course, that can lead to uh, very harmful and uh, indeed violent consequences. Uh, but it's not about as if we're about to see the overthrow of democracy as such. That was David Broder, a historian and Europe editor of Jacobin. His book, Mussolini's Grandchildren, is just out from Pluto. Of course, one of the effects of the rise of the right in Europe has been to pull the more mainstream parties in their direction, especially on issues around migrants and refugees. The Nationalist International has been very successful in spreading xenophobia across borders. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a behind-the-news favorite, We Don't Need This Fascist Groove Thing, from Heaven 17, from 1981. Till next week, bye.